Oh, it's always so interesting to me. I don't know about you, but when it seems that God is doing something among a community, how then it begins to intersect with us as individuals. And uh, unanticipatedly for me this morning, that happened just in seeing Jim and Raquel Bloom here this morning. As you mentioned, I grew up with, uh, with Jim, and, and we've been talking about joy as a church, uh, even just from last week and now moving forward. And I just found my heart welling up with joy from seeing them. I know them and their journey. I remember when they were married, uh, visiting their home in South Minneapolis, even some 15 years ago, and just seeing people who are engaged with what God is calling them towards and being able to just sort of bathe in that. It's, there's something inspiring about that, and there's something that just elicited joy in me this morning. I just think it's funny, right? You know, God calls us in a macro sense to something, and it begins to sort of play itself out in our individual journey. So, uh, and I took joy too. And, you know, I don't know my bluegrass and all of this over here in terms of uh, clapping and stomping, but great joy in that, though I am tone deaf. It was really fun to sing along. It's a great advantage of sitting up here. No one can hear you sing. Uh, Kevin did get us going in the sermon series last week titled Advantage Joy. And if you were here, he offered a great introduction uh, to this letter that Paul wrote to the Philippian community, which is infused with this sense of joy. And as we met and talked and, and, and thought, you just see all of these ways joy is present. Let's, let's talk about that a bit. And so Kevin, in giving us an introduction to the book, Last week, he, he brought forth this theme from the sense of Paul's journey and what rose uh, in Paul in the circumstances of his life as being led by the spirit in the Mediterranean world. Uh, he was consistently blocked in certain directions and needed to yield and to bend his will to who God is and to learn to discern the voice of God both himself and through individuals around. And as he yielded to that process, there was a sense of joy. That developed is great background to the book, which leads us to this week where we'll start now getting into the actual text of the letter that Paul wrote to the Philippian community. And Andrea will put it up on the screen. We'll read some of that. We're just going to look at a few of the verses. I'll read some, but we're going to land specifically on verses nine through eleven. You'll see where we go. But just to get into it, Paul says, I thank my God every time I remember you. In all my prayers for all of you, I always pray with joy because of your partnership in the gospel from the first day until now. Being confident of this, that he who began a good work will carry it on to completion until the day of Christ Jesus. It's actually right for me to feel this way about all of you, since I have you in my heart. And whether I am in chains or defending and confirming the gospel, all of you share in God's grace with me. God can testify how I long for all of you with the affection of Christ Jesus. So now, out of this overflowing joy Paul feels, this is my prayer for all of you. That your love may abound more and more in knowledge and depth of insight. Let's pay attention to that phrase, that your love may abound more and more in knowledge and depth of insight. So that you may be able to discern what is best and may be pure and blameless for the day of Christ, filled with the fruit of righteousness that comes through Jesus Christ to the glory and praise of God. Now, I don't know about you and your journey with the biblical text, but this for me was a passage that I'd never spent really any significant time with. I was unfamiliar with some of the contents of this early part of Philippians. And so as this was new for me, and Kevin asked me to prepare a sermon on this, it required me to do some digging into the text. What is Paul 
saying here? What is he trying to, to elicit to the Philippians that they would understand? And, and I don't know how you do your work in the text. I know for me, when I read stuff, I try to take note of those things that prompt a question in me. What? Why is that there? What, what's happening there? Why is that in the text? I don't understand. I'm going to have to dig. And the thing that stood out for me in this passage uh, was when Paul prayed, and I mentioned it a second ago to pay attention to that, that their love would grow in knowledge and depth of insight. And the reason why this prompted a question in me is I thought those two qualities, those two characteristics, love and knowledge, don't seem to be sort of in the same plane. They don't seem to be, uh, regularly go together. They're sort of separate. I mean, in my mind's eye, it seems like we as people, we love on one hand, right? And then we, we sort of grow in knowledge on the other hand. Those are two separate things. Like I want to learn to love my wife and love my kids more deeply. And then on the other side of it, I want to grow in knowledge. And that's sort of the thing that I would do maybe in school or, or continue to, to do work at university life that I love as sort of part of the church, right? And I, and I grow in knowledge as part of school. They're two different things. We as Christians often talk about the split that we experience between the head and the heart, don't we? The knowledge that we carry. And then it's like, but why doesn't that get anywhere? struggling with some of these concepts even as recently as Friday night as some friends of ours came over and we just talked about that. It's fun to just explore some of these things with friends. And as we talked about some of these ideas, I dug a little deeper and found some interesting things I'd like to try to unpack this morning. And in fact, more than interesting things. As I began to just let this sort of germinate and digest into my thinking and who I am, there is something really interesting here because Paul is asking that love itself would grow in knowledge and depth of insight. That our love itself would grow in knowledge and depth of insight. What does that mean? How do we do that? And as we unpack that, I think we'll find some things there that are very important for us as the people of God in terms of how we live and how we breathe and how we do our day. So with that as a way of introduction, let's pray as we begin, and I'll try to jump in with you. Being the exegetical nerd that I am, I hope you enjoy some of the digging into the text with me. We'll try to pull out the insights there, but let's pray. God, I ask that the same sort of spirit that was present in Paul, that out of his overflowing joy for the Philippians, that he just, he longed for things to happen in them. I ask that that spirit that was there would be among us and that we could hear afresh and anew this great prayer, that our love itself would somehow grow in knowledge and depth of insight. We ask these things by the power of your spirit. Amen. Okay, so as I dug in, just as a starting point, I'm going to go maybe step by step through verse 9 in particular about this idea of love and then growing and then knowledge and insight. So we'll have three little movements here. And as I read the various scholars and commentators and got into the Greek language and tried to understand what was happening, the first thing that was noted that that was indicated is that the love already exists among the Philippians. He's not asking for them to begin to love he is noting already that the love that exists would begin to grow. That's an important point. I thought about that a little bit, and I thought, well, what if Paul wrote a letter 
to the church at Wyzetta, west of 494, right? <laughs> that was funny when Joel said that this morning. And wrote a letter to the church of Wyzetta, west of 494. And, and, and he, he wanted to indicate something. Would he say the same sort of thing? Would he say, let your love, assuming that the love already is there. Like, if I had a chance to meet with Paul down at Caribou Coffee or something, because, you know, all important spiritual meetings happen at Caribou at like 5.30 in the morning. And Paul said to me, you know, dude, well, maybe he wouldn't say that, but he would say, Peter, I need to write a letter to Wyzetta Free Church. I need to ask you a question. Do they already have love rolling in their midst? Is, there, or is it already there? Now, I would probably look at him and say, Paul, I am not at all qualified to answer that question. I have no authority about that in terms of talking about it. But all I could tell you is what I've seen. In the 18 months or two years that you've graciously welcomed me and my family in in this way to serve with Kevin and to be a part of what's going on, all I can tell you, Paul, is what I've seen. And I've noted even right from the beginning that just right from walking in the door and the greeters are there, right? that the greeters seem to actually look me in the eye and that they really seem authentically joyful about seeing me there. I mean, I hope that's not just me. I hope that's all of you, too. But I've noticed that as I've walked in and I would say, Paul, you know, I've been in many churches where the greeting team is part of some sort of assimilation philosophy, where if somebody comes in the church, we've got to get them from point one, like welcome to the gap, you know, or something like that, so that they'll spend the money in the church later on as giving units. I've actually heard that language. I was with my ministry students at Northwestern the past couple of weeks, and I said, do you guys know that I've been in church meetings where the people are reduced to the sense of giving units, and there's mathematical equations about how many giving units will associate to the kind of budget you can have, and it turns into all this assimilation, all this kind of stuff. You know, and they're at 19, 20, and 21-year-olds, and so the world is ideologically black and white, you know, and they're just horrified by this idea. They're like, red, the blood of angry men. You know, they're doing their lay... Miserab thing, and I promise I won't ever sing. <laughs> well, mostly promise I won't sing again. But, but I just noted that. I said, Paul, I don't sense that. I sense people are seeing me when I walk in the door. There's love present there. I think about my children in between services. As we're here, we often go over to the Navigators group at 1045 in the Fellowship Hall, and they have great treats. By the way, for all of you, they have great treats there and they welcome you really well and they let you eat at their table free of charge okay so just head over there after service there should be plenty joel's going to do a little loaves and fishes thing over there it'll just keep abounding i promise i've been in board meetings and that's been a privilege behind the scenes with staff and with elders and there's lots of stuff that comes up sometimes tense kinds of things that come up but you can sort of just feel that the love is there Maybe you, like me, were here during Easter and I saw the videos of the people up on the screen and how their lives had been changed by the love that they found when they were here. And so I think I could say to Paul, you know, I, I think so. At least from where I stand, the love is here. And you just hear Paul, that's a big deal. You know, Paul's always so passionate. He writes in run-on sentences because he can't even control it, you know, so he just, he'd be excited. He said, Peter, that's great. So with that in mind, tell them that their love should abound and grow in knowledge and depth and insight. So as I looked at that further in the passage, assuming love is there, the second part, that uh, just before we go even too much further, that Paul is saying, well, let that love grow. But before we just sort of skate over that idea of growth, I began to study that again 
in the original language in which Paul wrote. Really interesting things some scholars came up with related to that love. D.A. Carson, great theologian of today's age, said that what Paul is praying for is a constantly increasing love. Stephen Fowle notes that Paul uses in the, the, the tense of the Greek that it's a continuous growth in love. It just never stops. It just keeps going. Ben Witherington says that Paul is referring to an overflowing kind of love, a love without limits or measure. Paul would take great joy if that was happening. And the one that really got me was the ancient church father, John Chrysostom, wrote that to do this, to grow in love, is a good of which there is not satiety, meaning it can never be satisfied. I had to look up that word phonetically. I didn't know how to say satiety until this last week. But it gave me chills when I read it, that love is never satisfied. It can only grow. It can only abound that much more. You never find the end of it. You can continue to pursue it and walk in it, and it'll just continue to grow and expand. You can never say you have it fully. You can never say that you've checked love off of your Christian list of things to do. You will never find the end of it. And I got to thinking about it, and it's a passage of Scripture I'm sure many of you know as well from First John, where he just simply says, God is love. And knowing what I understand about God, God is also infinite, Right? So if God is love and God is infinite, then we talk about this infinite, ever-expanding love of which there is no satiety. It's never satisfied. Peter, tell them to grow in that way. The love that you see and sense and feel, tell them to grow in that way. Let it be what marks your community. Let people who even walk in the door bathe in that fact. So that takes me to the third point exegetically before we get into some of the potential implications of this. And this is the part that prompted the question for the beginning uh, of the sermon in me. The love that's there as it's growing, let it grow in knowledge and depth of insight. So, again, what does that mean? To have a love on one hand, but it's growing itself somehow. Not, not my brain, not my intellectual awareness, but love itself is growing. One scholar put it this way I thought was quite interesting. He said, you know, we often expect our knowledge to lead to love. Meaning that, you know, we have knowledge of the gospel story of Jesus' death and resurrection. We're aware of that, and that'll somehow crash from my head down to my heart that, that it'll lead to love. So that's not what Paul is talking about here. It's true to some extent, I get all of that, but Paul is talking about a kind of knowledge that, that comes from the depths of love. I'll try to describe some of this for you. It's not story knowledge. It's not factual knowledge. It's not intellectual knowledge. He's talking about us as people, the entire way in which we see the world, the entire way in which we respond to what we see, the entire way that we, that we react to those situations around us is filled with love, that we have knowledge uh, of just how to act and react appropriately in the world, meaning that we're more than people who just choose to love. We're more than people who just choose to love. Increasingly, we're people who simply bleed out love. 
It pours out of our decisions and interactions and awarenesses. Uh, Thomas Aquinas said that the spirit with which we are all anointed provides us with knowledge and truth. But it's not intellectual knowledge as we tend to understand it, he says, but that all things are done by us in such a way that they're informed by charity, meaning that our mind and our actions are governed by other centered love. You see, often we hear that love is a choice we must make as if through like gritted teeth or something. Right. You know, we got to we got to choose to love. And, and I think there's something about that. Something good and right, you know, kind of like what Peter would always do. I will never leave you, Lord. And it's sort of out of this act of will that we choose to love. But what Paul is talking about here is that love becomes a condition of who you are. That it simply just represents the way in which you see the world. Now, I've used a ridiculous analogy to try to describe this sort of thing before. I've even used it from up here. I'll use it again. Uh, it's an analogy that relates to how I see chocolate cake. And I figure if Kevin used the fortune cookie example last week, then I'll break out the chocolate cake uh, example as well. But I, okay, see, now, even from my own ADD, I'm already pulled towards the chocolate cake. The idea that we're talking about here is when I see a picture of the glory of chocolate cake, right? Uh, I am not sitting here thinking, oh, you know, I really don't want to eat that chocolate cake. I really don't have any desire to eat that chocolate cake, but I guess out of a choice of my will through gritted teeth, I will eat the chocolate cake. No, my heart abounds with this knowledge of that chocolate cake is good, right? And, and, it, and that's intrinsically true, which I said before. And so with my heart abounding with that knowledge, when I see a piece of chocolate cake, I just respond to go eat it. It's consistency between who I am as a person and how I act in this world. It's consistency with who I am as a person and how I even see the world. My knowledge is that chocolate cake is good. And so in that place, I just naturally respond to it. So often I find, I don't know about you, but my response to the world, well, at least my first response, I can kind of manage it pretty well. Right? I can ultimately get to that place where I might act loving or I might do an action that is loving. But was that the first response of my heart? Was that how I actually saw the world to begin with? Did I react and respond just in that way? Because Paul is saying, make my joy just overflow and abound by being the kind of people whose love is growing in such a way that you see the world that way. I read another scholar. He said, you know, the New Testament presents our encounter with Christ as a new way to view the world. The repentance and forgiveness and conversion offered there are a means to a new kind of mind that perceives differently. Such a person is putting off the old nature and is renewed and created in the likeness of our God, in true righteousness and holiness. So as we pull all of this together and we'll start reflecting on some of the implications of this, there seems to be this sense that Paul is asking to, to the Philippian people, let your love grow and abound in such a way that it starts governing every part of who you are, that it just bleeds right out of you into how you see the world. And there's one more piece to that, he says. We don't have a lot of time for this part of it. He said, grow in that way so that you can discern what's best. And that Greek word for best there literally means to be able to distinguish between what is good and what is evil. 
and even beyond that, the good and the evil there is not this idea of like a, a singular act or something as good or evil, but it's that you would actually bring about the perpetual release of good and evil into the world. That the good that you bring would begin to flow forth and begin to create an atmosphere of just what is good and right and holy. So if we as the people of God are growing in love, we begin to just simply see what is the good thing to do in any circumstance. Good by the definition of the kingdom of God. Not by our own definitions, not by our own study and knowledge and all of that. We grow in love. And so when a circumstance presents itself in front of us, we just naturally begin to see the good. And then we act out of that. And the good just begins to burst forth. That's exciting. And the idea that we can just create atmospheres of that which is good. You don't have to have a lot of school knowledge. In fact, you could maybe even be 13 years old. And be filled with love and partnering with the kingdom, never having studied in some seminary in any day of your life, you can be filled with the love of the kingdom and to bring the good into this world. So that's my best shot at exegeting this passage, which then leads me to the question, so what would that kind of love look like in regular life, just in real life, day to day interactions? I found that actually relatively difficult to answer, partially because I know that I fall short of that kind of love. So when I fall short, and I don't know about you in terms of just trying to measure myself against what is in the text, I begin to just sort of reflect a bit and think of scenarios and how I would respond and and what's happening there, maybe to get my head around this a little bit further. And the first scenario that came into my head was that of Washington, D.C., What would love abounding to infinity to release the good into this world look like there? Hmm. Because I don't see uh, a ton of other centered acts of charity being done for the good of another where we're seeing one another clearly. There are people certainly working within the government there in Washington, D.C. for that purpose. But, But don't we just get this sense that it's about our own power and our own control. When is the last time you heard somebody come back from Washington, D.C. And, and said, you know, man, you could just feel this atmosphere of love. People come back and they say, you can feel the atmosphere of power and control. But before I get too judgmental about all of that, why don't I just sort of hmm, uh, hmm, uh, carefully look inward for a minute and see if some of the seeds of that exist in my own life. You know, some of you know that part of my week is done within academia. And the power and control I see there, even in Christian academia, is enough to take my breath away, where people are consistently using their intellectual prowess and their massive bookshelves. That's always my favorite. The measure of a professor is, you know, the size of their bookshelf. And you walk in, you're like overwhelmed with this power of the bookshelf and all these fancy letters. And they're using it consistently to beat down other arguments that might stand in their way. Is that any different than Washington, D.C.? And I serve in Christian academia. See it all the time. I know those places in my spirit where I could go. I have those fancy letters. Could I choose to love instead? Would I even realize that which is good in a kingdom sense if I could learn to grow in this love? Some of you know I run a business on the side as well, have done so for the last nine years. I know a lot of you are involved in business here too. And most of the business decisions that I deal with 
on a daily basis has to do with questions of profitability and bottom line, reducing the situation and even the people sometimes to numbers, right? Treating people well so that they'll uh, increase our bottom line. We'll have a policy of good treatment here so that we're more profitable. But do I really see the people with whom I work? Do I really love them? Could I even love my competitors? Especially those competitors who I know who through unethical means are taking sales away from our company. (laughs) What would that require? Could that be in my disposition? Could I actually see them in that way? To have a knowledge of that which is good in that situation. Good in a kingdom sense because my love is just simply overflowing that I could extend to my competitors, not through gritted teeth because I'm a Christian who believes it's the right thing to do, but simply it's because, like chocolate cake, it's how I see. So keep reflecting and keep reflecting and it starts getting harder. So the claim is that this love knows no bounds, that it can never be satisfied, which means it extends to everything. And so now I think about the horrifying events in Boston this last week. What would love look like there? As we seek justice for those that are perpetrating these horrific acts, does that justice require that at the same time we hate? It's so hard. A child was killed. And we hear comments in situations like this. Oh, I hope there's a special place in hell for people like that. You know, I I get that. I have five children at home. If one of them had been killed in this, I would feel that. But does justice require that spirit? Would that release good into the air? To meet hate with hate? Would that release kingdom kinds of stuff? Could justice somehow be infused with love? Not, this is where it gets scary, not just for the victim, but for the victimizer. German theologian Jürgen Moltmann was a prisoner in a British prison camp in World War II. He was a sympathizer of Nazi Germany, and his life was utterly altered in his time in the prison camp. And he began to reflect on how to respond to now the Nazis that he so abhorred and detested for what they had done now that he could see them clearly. But instead of hating, he said this, and this is incredibly challenging for me. Frankly, I don't know what to do with this. In his book, The Way of Jesus, Moltmann says, in loving one's enemies, right? Because Jesus says to love your enemies. Not sure he says so through gritted teeth. He says, in loving one's enemies, one no longer asks, how can I protect myself and deter my enemies from attacking me. Though, of course, we should protect ourselves, right? But that's not the main question we ask. The question is then, how can I deprive my enemy of his hostility? You see, through love, we draw our enemies into our own sphere of responsibility, our responsibility being that of love to bring the good of God's kingdom into this world, and then we begin to extend our responsibility to them. I don't know what to do with that. I don't know what to do with that. I'm not going to sit here and say some authoritative thing that it's easy or simple or that's just what we should do because I'm still in that place where a child was killed. But if God's kingdom love 
is to grow and to abound and it knows no end and no satisfaction, we begin to start asking these kinds of questions of ourselves. Who are we? How do we see the world? How do we respond? So then I keep reflecting and believe it or not, it gets harder. So I already can't really do that, okay? I recognize that. But I've got to keep going. I want to understand the kingdom of God. How far does this go, Paul? You said it to the Philippians to let it grow and it has no satisfaction. How far are you going to take this? Okay? Can we just please limit this? And I thought about what it might be like to love someone who is gay. You may have read uh, a letter that was circulating around this last month. A real popular letter written by a young Christian woman who is struggling with her homosexuality. And she wrote an open letter to the church about that. I don't have time for all of it, just a few excerpts. It was very challenging to me. She said, Many of you believe that we do not exist within your walls or schools or neighborhoods. You believe that we are few and easily recognized, but I tell you we are many. We are your sons and daughters, nieces and nephews, and grandchildren. And some of you know exactly what I speak. Increasingly so, I have people coming to me and say, Peter, what should I do? My son, my daughter, my aunt, my uncle, whatever it happens to be, I don't even know what to do. She says, we're in your Sunday school classes, pews, and choirs. We enter your doors weekly seeking guidance and some glimmer of hope that we could actually change. Like you, we've invited Jesus into our hearts. Like you, we want to be all that Christ wants us to be. Like you, we pray daily for guidance. And like you, we often fail. And when the word homosexual is mentioned in the church, we hold our breaths and sit in fear, she said. Most often the word is followed with condemnation, laughter, hatred, or jokes. Rarely do we hear any words of hope. But would you meet us at the well? Would you touch us, even if we showed signs of leprosy or of AIDS? Would you call us down from our trees, as Christ did to Zacchaeus, and invite yourself to be our guest? Would you allow us to sit at your table? Can you support us as Christ works in our lives, as he works in yours, to help us all overcome? And know this, to those of you who would change the church to accept the gay community and its lifestyle, please know you give us no hope at all. You are willing to compromise the word of God to be politically correct. We don't ask for your acceptance of our sins any more than we accept yours. We simply ask for the same support, love, guidance, and most of all, some measure of hope that is extended to everyone in the congregation. We're your brothers or sisters and sisters. We are not what we shall be, but thank God we are not what we were. Let us work together to see that we all arrive safely home. What do we do with that? can't tell you the number of conversations I have with my students training for ministry at school. And they're like, should, should a gay person ever be in the church? They don't know what to do with that. And part of me says, well, at least this girl wants to change. That's easier, right? <laughs> Isn't that easier yet? Yeah, wants to be on the journey of change. Okay, I can get my head around that. But if love knows no ends, can I find a way to love somebody in a gay lifestyle while they are defiantly shaking their fist? Could I love them? Could I somehow passionately disagree with them while also passionately loving them? I don't even know where to find those spots in my spirit. Love does not require that we sacrifice what is true. 
Okay, let me say that again. I don't believe that love requires that we sacrifice what is true. But neither does the pursuit of truth require hate and condemnation. Neither does the pursuit of truth require hate and condemnation. I have little idea how to live and breathe this way. There's so many ways to reflect across genders, young and old, single people, divorcees, people of different race and economic classes, as the Blooms have talked about. How do we love in all of these ways? I don't even know how to begin. Most of my journey has been about the intellectual apprehension of Christian knowledge. Most of my journey has been about the intellectual apprehension of Christian knowledge. Bible studies, I'm going to learn all of this stuff, but then I live with this weird split between my head and my heart. Paul is saying it would give me great joy, Philippians, if you would learn the abounding nature of love so that it governs the way that you see the world so that you just naturally know what is good. I don't know what is good in the Boston massacres. I don't know what is good in this conversation about homosexuality. I want to grow in love, so maybe I could learn. One last place to reflect. Gets harder. (laughs) What could this mean for our marriages? Don't so many of us live out our lifelong unions in some sort of negotiated truce based on the sharing of power? You get what you want, I'll get what I want, we'll sort of serve one another in that way, and maybe we've long given up on the idea of an ongoing, dynamic, mutual, self-serving, breathtaking unity in which our knees are staggered in the presence of another. That's the stuff for children, right? That's the stuff for young people. We call that infatuation until they know better. (laughs) When they know better, hmm, we end up kind of loving through gritted teeth. Is it possible that 10 or 20 or 30 or 60 years into a lifelong union that your spouse could still stagger you when you see them? Is it possible that there's more to this than a negotiated truce based on the sharing of power? I read this great story. I'll close with this. Uh, A couple years ago, it was written. The UCLA basketball coach, John Wooden, that famous coach, was getting to the end of his life, 9,900 years old. And the sports writer, Rick Riley, met with him. And Wooden had lost his wife some 20-some-odd years uh, before he had died. And it was about 15 years before when Riley met, uh, met with him. And Riley said this, John Wooden took me into his bedroom once in the year 2000. The clocks were all wrong. He had stopped them at the time of his wife Nellie's death. It was 15 years before. Only one side of the bed was slept in, and even that, it was above the sheet. Wooden had not been under the sheets since the day she died. And on her pillow were hundreds of little letters in envelopes tied up in bundles in yellow ribbons. He had written to her every month telling her how much he loved her and what all the kids were doing. He did that right up until the last few months of his life when his eyes had stopped working. Once when he was missing Nellie terribly, one of his great-granddaughters, she was five at the time, saw how sad he was. And she tugged up on his pants leg and said, Papa, I know you miss Mama. So I'm going to rent you an airplane so you can fly up into the clouds and see her. Upon witnessing all this, Rick Riley 
hardened journalist reflected that John Wooden made me want to love more deeply. What would it be like for our children to see us and grow up where the very atmosphere that they breathe is one in which the marriage is abounding in love? That that good has somehow been released in the atmosphere. That we're discerning what is best, not because of all of our scriptural knowledge, though it'll include that we're discerning what is best because we simply know what is best because we're filled with the abounding love of God. How do we do this? I don't know. I suspect it's not easy. But love will win the day. I'll invite Joel and the worship team to come back up again. And I will offer you, after the song in worship, just something from Mere Christianity with C.S. Lewis. Great promise that Jesus is at work and that this is possible. I don't know how to do it all. I, I wish it was 10 easy steps, right? Don't we love to reduce our faith to a little book on a bookshelf that says 10 easy steps and now you're good to go? I don't know about you, but I found that often if I really want this kind of stuff, if I want it in my marriage, if I want to see how this goes, it often requires a lot of personal pain and sorrow and turmoil and, yes, even death. But out of that death come the seeds of life. For a seed must die so that life can come. It's part of the journey. It's not easy, but it comes. We'll sing to that regard now, and I'll come up and read for you some pieces about the real Son of God who's at our side to do this work so that we can become the kind of people who are abounding, ever-increasing in love and to know what is good about what we're doing. I drove into my driveway the other day. Like you, live in a marriage that has its highs and lows. Callie and I have walked through a lot of the dark valleys together. A lot of death had to come in order to experience life, but the life is possible. I remember driving in just the other day, 18 and a half years into this with my wife, hopefully 50 more to go. As I pulled in, my, I felt this sort of butterfly sort of thing in my stomach and my legs literally felt weak at the prospect of seeing my beloved. Maybe just a whisper, maybe just a, a little note, but it's that sort of seed of love to grow. It requires us to die, to live in this way. But here's the promise of C.S. Lewis in Mere Christianity. I love what he says. Know this, that as you do your journey, the real Son of God is at your side. And he is beginning to turn you into the same kind of thing as himself. He's beginning to turn that tin soldier into a live man. The part of you that does not like it, well, that part is still tin. But put it right out of your head, the idea that these are only fancy ways of saying that Christians are to read in the Bible what Christ said and then try to carry it out as a man may read what Plato or Mark said and try to carry it out. They mean something much more than that. They mean that a real person, Christ here and now in this very room where you are saying your prayers, is doing things to you. It's a living man. Still as much a man as you and still as much as God as he was when he created the world, he's really coming. And he's really interfering with your very self, killing the old natural self in you and replacing it with the kind of self he has. It's a great promise. It was what gave Paul joy to see that happening among the Philippian community. 2,000 years later, we can represent that as well. It won't be easy, but the promise is true. So that blessings on your journey.
take peace that would pass understanding. And let it guard your heart, create joy, so that you're a person of love, releasing that which is good into this world. We ask these things in the Son's name and by the power of our spirit.